since we've been taking a break for about a month now from 1 Peter, I wanted to begin this morning by just summarizing uh, really where we were before we left and uh, picking back up with 1 Peter this morning in chapter 3. I wanted to kind of review and uh, summarize for us, um, considering sort of what we've thought about up to this point. Uh, Central to Peter's letter is the idea of the Christian identity. Uh, Peter is writing to Christians who are facing persecution. Now, Peter's not writing to a particular congregation like Paul, for example, writes the church in Ephesus or the church in Colossae. Uh, For Peter, he is writing to rather a diverse group of people that is scattered throughout the dispersion, he says. Um, And these are Christians who perhaps are Jewish in background or most likely, as I argued from the beginning, are more likely just Christians in general, as this has always been classified as a general epistle, one that's generally written to Christians uh, who face various things. And he's writing to Christians, particularly facing various trials. So at the very beginning, he said, I, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And so Uh, Peter is writing to Christians who are being grieved by, right? Uh, The way you might be grieved by pain and suffering. Uh, So these Christians are grieved through their suffering, the various trials. And and there's not one type of trial I don't think Peter has in mind, though it seems from the letter, if you were to take all of the conversation about suffering, it seems to be centered on suffering because of their Christian faith. Uh, suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering because they're Christians specifically. Although, as I've shown you throughout, um, it seems that Peter is also addressing those who are suffering from maybe physical or spiritual or psychological suffering. These Christians are ones who need help. They need help to how does one live in a fallen world where there is suffering? How do you and I as Christians live in a world where we are constantly facing difficulty, where we're constantly facing temptations and struggles, whether the trial be physical or emotional, whether the trial be because we have a terrible boss at work or struggles in the home with family, whatever the difficulty might be, whether it be because we are following Christ and being faithful to Him or some other reason. How do you and I as Christians live in a fallen world where we will face suffering? Well, this is the question that Peter seeks to answer for us. And and in a way of summary, uh, this is what he said up to this point. Uh, Really what he has thought about and had us think about is our identity in Christ. And so we've kind of uh, created this series by saying Christians are blank. Christians are blank. And that's really what Peter is doing. He's saying, look, this is who you are. So in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, what what we need to know isn't, we don't need a motivational speech. We don't need a, you know, go get them and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of motivational sermon or letter. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to know our identity 
in Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what Peter hopes to do in this letter is to tell you and I who we are in Christ so that when trial comes, when difficulty comes, we're not questioning God's love for us. We're not questioning God's goodness. We're not questioning God's grace. So when the doctor calls and says we have cancer, we're not, we're not questioning God's faithfulness to us. We're not questioning that His promises are true. We are reminded of who we are, and who we are never changes. So who are we? At the beginning of the letter, Peter said that Christians are chosen. Christians are chosen. Christians are called out of darkness into light. Christians are called from eternity past. They are elect, as Peter says. He goes on in verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1 to say that Christians are saved. And they are saved by grace alone and not by works. In verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1, Peter said that Christians are the point. Christians are the point. The point of God's redemptive plan was to save sinners, to save you. In verses 13 through 21 of chapter 1, we learn that Christians are holy. That Christians are called to be holy. Not perfect, but holy, set apart for God and His glory. In verses 22 through chapter 2 and verse 3, we learn that Christians are born again. That we are made alive, that we were once dead, but that we are now alive. We are born again. In chapter 2, in verses 4 through 10, we learn that Christians are God's treasure. Well, doesn't that transform your life when you understand that you are God's treasure, that you exist for God's pleasure, for His enjoyment? As we enjoy Him, we bring joy to Him. As we considered last week, that we are created to give God glory in our lives. We are saved to bring God's name, fame, among the world. In chapter 2, in verses 11 through 15, we saw that Christians are honorable. That we are honorable in, our, in the workplace as we seek to live out and follow Christ. That we are to be honorable. Whether we are in private or we are in public, we are to live a life of honor. Honoring those in authority as we did a, did a moment ago by praying for them and supporting them. Not ranting about them on Facebook and, and seeking to undermine them and their authority. As much I disagree about our current leadership in this country... But, nonetheless, I've been called by God to honor those in authority. And then we saw in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7 that Christians are good spouses. That wives are to submit to their husbands as husbands submit to the Lord. As they live in submission to the Lord, wives don't need to be afraid to submit to their husbands because their husbands are not lording it over their wives, but rather they are submitting themselves to Christ. And they are a reflection of the gospel in their lives. And so really in this section, beginning in chapter 2, and verse 11, through the text we're going to consider this morning is, is really one big section in Peter where he deals with various groups, as we considered workers, those in the government, those in... 
as citizens, those that are in spousal relationships. And, and he, as he deals with different groups within the congregation, as he seeks to address those in, in government or those under governing authorities, how Christians are to live and to submit to secular government. And friends, you don't have to be afraid to, to say that our, that our government is a secular. Like our country is becoming progressively secular every single day. All right? So, so it's okay. Christians have lived for 2,000 years under these conditions. You can make it. It's going to be all right. All right? The sky is not falling. All right? You will be okay. We have God's word to help us navigate these difficult waters. Nonetheless, we are called to submit to secular government. He's addressed those who are slaves and masters, how, how they're to treat. And what we talked about is how we as employers or employees treat one another and how we care for one another, how Christians are submit to bosses and managers, even ones that are terrible, evil, evil, evil. He then turned our attention, as we considered just a second ago, to husband and wives. And now, now he concludes this section by really hitting everyone else that maybe was missed. And by summarizing the whole thing, by saying very clearly that you are to be a blessing to others and not a curse. That Christians are to be good. Christians are to be good. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter this morning. To chapter 3 and verse 8. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I just invite you to grab that one in front of you and page, turn to page 1015. 1015. We're going to consider verses 8 through 22 this morning, a longer section, and as you'll see, the most difficult in Peter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to, to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the, prison, the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christians are good. Throughout this passage, we have seen over and over that word, good. Christians are to be good. They are to have a good conscience and they are to pursue good works. Christians are to be good, even if they suffer for it. Christians are to pursue good, even if they suffer for their obedience. And they are to do that as they follow Christ's example. And trust His power and authority over those who persecute them. This morning, the backdrop of our text is clear. It is that we are to suffer, and while we are suffering, we are to do good. We are to do good even if it costs us something. We are to do good even if it causes us pain. We are to continue to trust Christ as our example in our lives. And so the purpose of our time this morning is really to convince you that as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you are to be good. You are to pursue good works. You you are to, to pursue these things that we see, fruit of the gospel in your life. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Christ. So in our time this morning, I want to just center our time and our thoughts around three points that really center around Christians being good. First, you know, considering what, what do we mean by being good? What do we mean by that? Uh, what do we mean by suffering while doing good? And then finally, considering really Christ's example uh, that he leaves for us, that his sacrifice is an example to us. And then, then hopefully in the short time that we have, I might get into that thorny little passage that I read about Jesus going and proclaiming the gospel to those in prison. Well, let's consider this morning, first, Christians are good. In verses 8 through 12, we see Peter lays before us clear exhortations for which there doesn't need to have much comment, though I hope to exhort you, what does it mean? Christians are to have characteristics of being do-gooders. This is what we are. We are to do good. Uh, these are characteristics of a Christian. These are not to just show up in the super Christian, the one you know who has doing everything, the, the awesome Christian, the one that has their life together. No, these characteristics are typical for one who is following Christ. I wonder, is it typical for you? Are these the things that you are pursuing in your life? Look with me, if you will. He, he writes, finally, all of you. In, in, in case you thought this was for your neighbor or for someone who's not here today, uh, let me remind you that this message is for you, all of you, right? Everyone needs to hear this word this morning. I need to hear, and trust me, this week as I have prayed and thought through this, my heart has been convicted and I have sought Jesus in the need of the gospel. And, and before I begin, I just want to make very clear, very clear this morning, that none of these characteristics earn your place with God. I just need to be clear about the gospel this morning. These do not appease God, but they do please God. They do not appease God's wrath, 
against your sin. Only Jesus, and we'll consider in a moment him. We'll consider our Savior in a moment. These are the fruit of the gospel. These are the result of receiving a new heart, of being born again. So everything we've considered up to this point, we need to, we need to remind ourselves of, right? That we are chosen, that we are holy, that we are born again. Because none of this in chapter 3 would be possible apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in the finished work of Christ for your sins, I just exhort you to do that now. I exhort you to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ, to cry out to Him for salvation. And all of this will be evident in your life. All of this will be made possible. Well, let's consider these characteristics now. First, he says, have unity of mind. We are to be like-minded. Christians gathered in a congregation are to be like-minded, united in mind and spirit. Unity among us doesn't mean that we agree about everything, but that we have to agree about something. But to be clear, unity in the local church does not mean that everyone is a Republican or everyone is a Democrat or everyone comes down on all issues the same way. That is what the world does. That is not what the church of Jesus Christ does. So, so, so don't hear unity of mind meaning you have to agree with me on everything. But you do need to agree on some things. Particularly those things that have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So over the last month we considered the five solos of the Reformation. If you struggle at any of those points, if you wrestle with any of those about the gospel, come and see me. Let's talk. Let's think through your struggles and your difficulties. Right? Because we need to be unified on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be unified on what we believe the Bible teaches about itself, about Scripture. We need to be unified on who God is and who His Son Jesus Christ is. We must be unified on the central claims of Christianity. Now we can differ over matters of eschatology, end times, you know, when and how and all that. We, we can differ on those matters. We can disagree and debate in Christ-like love. We can, we can, you know, have disagreements over whether or not we think the carpet should be this ugly green or if it should be some other ugly color. You know, we can, we can debate on those things and we can disagree in love. But at the end of the day, we must remember we are united together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, the church is one made up of a diverse group of people. Even today, we're not that diverse, but even as you consider the, the, the minimal diversity we have in this room today, where in the world, outside of some sporting event or country, you know, those kind of, you don't see these kind of unity. In the world, you unify around things you like. But in the gospel, we are unified around Jesus. And so we strive. We strive for unity. We strive to unify the body of Christ and not to divide it. We, we seek not to divide Christ's body, but to unite the body, to lay aside our differences, to lay aside our personal preferences for the sake of others. 
We are to be unified in mind. And, and as I said, there is much we could say about many of these. Not only that, we, we see we are to have sympathy. We are to be sympathetic. We are to be understanding. We are to actually genuinely care about others. You know, when we ask how are you doing, we actually, we actually want to know. We actually care. It's not just some nice thing to say to somebody when you meet them. But we genuinely care. Our hearts are broken when others' hearts are broken. So friends, I wonder, do you gather on Sunday and genuinely feel the pains of others? When you hear about a sister or brother suffering persecution or suffering difficulty physically or emotionally, does your heart, your heart weep? Friends, we gather not to receive but to give. Friends, much of the problem with the modern church today is that we think of ourselves as consumers and not producers. We come to church to get something rather than to give something. Friends, I hope to see this congregation change in its behavior. That when we gather on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, that our primary focus is others and making sure that others' needs are met. We don't gather so that we are filled, but so that others are filled. And here's the great part. If we're all filling up others, friends, you're going to be filled, right? You're going to be filled. So you don't need to worry about yourself. Set your self-centeredness aside. Set your individualism aside and pursue Christ. Be sympathetic. Listen to others' needs. Ask difficult questions. Ask how people are really doing. Ask them how their prayer life is. Ask them how they're doing praying. And don't be afraid of the answer you hear. Don't be afraid to hear that a brother or sister is struggling. Don't in pride think that you're better than them. For we all have need. And this leads then to the third point we see in verse 8, that we are to... Love one another, brotherly love. Now, that translation sounds like all the brothers are getting together and all the sisters don't. Um, but, but again, when you see that in Scripture, that means love one another. Brothers and sisters, we are to love one another. right? We are to give ourselves for others. We are to sacrifice for others. Now, my question for you this morning is who are the one another's that you are to love? Are you to love all the Christians here in Catonsville? Are you to love all the Christians in the world? I'm sure at some level there is a mutual love for other Christians, but, but practically we understand this passage and others like it in the one and others of Scripture pointing to the practice of church membership. This is why we practice church membership and regenerate church membership uh, because we believe that, that we have covenanted together to love a particular people. And to be held responsible, right? God is not holding you responsible for your love for every Christian in this world. But he is holding you responsible as a Christian for your love in a particular local church. Whether it be this one or or some other one on the street or, or some other one in this county. Or wherever you have been gathered together. And so if you're not a member of a local church, I exhort you this morning to join in in a local church and to fulfill this passage, to love one another, to give yourself to care. Number four, he goes on and he says that we are to be compassionate. 
tender-hearted. Doesn't that capture well compassion? Tender-hearted. We are not to have hard hearts, hard hearts of judgmentalism, but rather a tender, a compassion heart, knowing that others are where we once were. Look, if you are spiritually lording it over others and, and you know, folks are just not as spiritually advanced as you are, maybe you might want to have some compassion. Not only that, we are to, as we heard in Romans 12, weep with those who weep. Though I find that very often easier than that second half, rejoice with those who rejoice. When your co-worker gets the promotion that you rightly deserve, can you rejoice with them? When your neighbor next to you has the car that actually runs all the time, can you rejoice with them? As Christians, our rejoicing and our weeping reflects the gospel more than we realize. And friend, this morning, if you aspire to be an elder, let me say that this needs to be a trait high on the list. I heard recently Danny Aiken said that I would never call an elder or pastor to a church that does not love children or the elderly. He said, I would stay far, far away from that. Right? Compassion for the weak, compassion for the helpless is who marks godly people. Number five, he says that we are to be humble. That we are to think of others more than we think of ourselves. That we are to be humble people. That we are to be people marked by a humility Wanting to give others credit where credit is due. To seek to promote others rather than ourselves. To promote others' ideas. To promote others' achievements more than our own. And friends, that just shows up in what we talk about. Look, if you're just talking about yourself all the time, you are not humble, okay? I'm just going to be clear with you. But if you are constantly talking about what God is doing in others... If you are constantly on the lookout for for exhorting others, for building others up, right? that's humility. That's humility. And so, friend, as Christians, we cultivate humility. Well, friends, there's much more we could say about verse 8, and I wish we could, and we're going to run out of time, I know, because I'm just rambling on about these things. But let's continue along quickly to verse 9. The sort of sixth uh, characteristic here of a Christian for which we will build the rest of our time on this morning is that Christians do not retaliate but bless those who hurt. Christians do not retaliate but bless those who hurt. Now, I want you to consider what radical and contrary way Christ is calling you to this morning. Because in our flesh, as humans, in our sin nature, the natural reaction when someone hurts us is to hurt them. I don't have to tell you that, right? All we would need to do is take a field trip down to my toddlers playing in the uh, nursery, and I will demonstrate to you very quickly the sin nature of when one is hurt, they revile in return. When evil is done, evil is returned. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back. 
That is how we naturally behave in our sin nature. But the Lord has saved us and called us to a better way. He has invited us, listen, to be a blessing to others and not a curse. This passage tells us that we are to, on the contrary, bless. Literally, to bless someone isn't to like give them some cash and, oh, I, you know, bless you, little sister. Bless your heart or whatever. No, it is to call upon the Lord's blessing. To literally pray, as Jesus said, for those who persecute you. To intentionally set aside time in your heart and in your life to call upon God, not for yourself, but for your enemy. You will not find that anywhere else in this world. You will find no other religion that will seek the care and compassion and blessings of others the way Christ calls us. And so Christians are called to be a blessing. And so I wonder, in your life, are you a blessing to others? Notice what he says, that this is why we've been called. This is what we've been called. For you, or for to this... And I really think it's all that we've considered up to this point, all these six exhortations. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, I don't think Peter has in mind here a temporal, present blessing. The language of the psalm in Psalm 34 that we read earlier and that Peter quotes here is an eschatological psalm. That is, it's a psalm that points to the end. That when Christ returns, the consummation of all things, when Christ finally and fully reigns over all, we will receive or obtain a blessing, an inheritance. We will receive a blessing, a reward. As Paul often exhorts as well, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure. Or as we heard Nathan read earlier, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So as Christians, we are to be a blessing to others because we have been called to it and so that, for the purpose that, we would receive God's eternal blessings. As I said earlier, we do these things not to appease God, but to please God. This brings God glory when we seek to be good. When we seek these characteristics and cultivate them in our lives, we give God the glory. God receives pleasure. Christians are godly individuals seeking to honor him and give him glory. This is what Paul Peter quotes here from the psalmist, and, and you can consider that more on your own. And particularly here, I just want to point out one thing, verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Turn away. You see the vivid picture here the psalmist gives. Turn away. Stop going your way. Stop going the way of evil. Stop going the way of vengeance. And turn and pursue, seek peace. Literally, run after peace. Like that's what we desire. We desire reconciliation when we are reviled against. We desire peace and not war with one another. 
and particularly in the congregation of God's people. Let's, let's continue. Let's go to point two. Christians are good even if they suffer for it. Verses 13 through 17. Friends, there's much here we could say. But I want you to see here is a promise to claim that blessings, as we just considered, comes to those who suffer well. That blessings come to those who suffer well. But even if, verse 14, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You don't need to be afraid when you suffer because you have been called to suffer. We don't need to be afraid. Right? This is what his exhortation. How do we suffer well? How, how is it that we can suffer well in the workplace uh, when maybe we're passed over that promotion because we're a Christian? Or forced to participate in some sort of activity at work that goes against our conscience? What are we to do when our friends and families alienate us because we want to faithfully follow Christ? You can understand that many of us are not facing, you know, jail time because we're following Jesus. But there are many ways Christians face persecution and face difficulty. How do you do that well? Well, Peter just sort of shows us a couple ways quickly. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Trust in who's in control. Do not be intimidated, he says. We are reminded that our soul is secure in Christ. Our identity in Christ secures us. In verses 15, he says, Honor Christ the Lord is holy. We are to honor Christ in our lives. That's what we are to do. As we suffer, we're not to claim that God has done something foul, but that he has set you apart for this very purpose. For this very reason, Christ has called you. Be prepared to offer hope even to those who hurt you. I mean, are you willing to offer the gospel to those who persecute you? For those that are evil, that demonstrate evil towards you? What is it? Did that just turn your heart? When, when the focus is their eternal soul and not your temporary suffering? That you care more about your enemy's soul and his position or her position before Christ than you do about your Pain and suffering. So, in that famous passage that many of us know well, that we are to give a defense to anyone who asks. And the context is clearly those who are hurting us, just as Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles would do in their own lives. And finally, we see that we are to have a good conscience. And what that means is, is that we are to do it to give God glory and not ourselves. We are not to do it in such a way as to repay evil. As, as we heard earlier, that look, we are not you know, to think that suffering or to suffer for doing evil, but for doing good, as we heard earlier with the previous exhortations. Well, I want to move on now to our final point, because I, I want to give it some justice, because I know there's probably one or two of you that are just itching to know what this means, and... And uh, I hope to offer some help. Verses 18 through 22, we see here the exhortation to follow Christ's example. Peter, uh, throughout the letter, will exhort Christians to do something, and then he will say, but consider Christ. Christ is your example. Follow Christ. Suffer for doing good, because Christ suffered for doing good. 
Christ also suffered injustice. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's much we could say about this, but clearly we see at the heart of the matter is substitutionary atonement. One for the other. The righteous is Christ. The unrighteous is you and I. He died in our place. The death we deserved, He paid. He died the death we deserved. As Horatius Bonar once wrote, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed Him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouted multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross the throng I see, mocking the Savior's groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Oh, he captures so well our place. That Christ died in our place. We were the enemy. We were the one who cried, crucify, crucify. Not literally, but spiritually, yes. Christ died in, on our behalf. And through this great sacrifice, we have life. Through his sacrifice, we have been brought to God, we, we learn in verse 18. And so what I want you to see is that through Christ's righteous act, he brought about the good of others. Uh, namely our salvation. And, and so it is through us when we seek the good of others, we seek righteousness for them. And so we can follow Christ's example because he is victorious over evil. In verses 19 through 20 come some of the most difficult words in all of the letter. Maybe many of you are familiar with them. Most, uh, if you grew up, in a mainline Protestant or Roman Catholic church, you would have regularly said the Apostles' Creed. And in there you would have recited the passage that Christ descended into hell. Many find support for such a view from this particular passage. Martin Luther said of this passage, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in all the New Testament. So that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. Well, friends, I join our brother Martin in this way. I am not fully convinced in one way or the other. Nor would I advise you to be dogmatic. I think you need to be convinced in your own mind what the passage means. But nonetheless, rest that you could be wrong. I remind you that the main things of the gospel are the plain things. And that the plain things are the main things. And, and this really just isn't a main thing because it isn't very plain. Christians have struggled to understand what it means. But perhaps I'll give it a shot. First, I think the context is important. Number one, Peter is writing to those who are being ridiculed for their faith in God. And he uses Noah as an example of one who also was ridiculed for his faith in God. He was one who suffered because he was trying to follow God. We see also we are told that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits and where is this prison? 
there has been many who have offered. I, I think it is this. I, I personally am convinced that these persons are the demons, the evil spirits that lived in the days of Noah and who married women and had children with them and whom were put in prison, enslaved in hell for their disobedience and that Christ is proclaiming through his ascension victory over these evil spirits. So John MacArthur, Tom Schreiner and others alike take that view. R.C. Sproul takes a different view. He would say that Christ preached the gospel through Peter, or excuse me, through Noah. That he didn't literally go anywhere, but that the spirit of Christ preached to those disobedient. And I could see and understand that as well. But I think the force of Christ actually going, he went and proclaimed, actually went somewhere. And I think the language here speaks of his ascension. Nonetheless, whether where you come down on the, on, on the interpretation of the finer details, I think the meaning and the point is the same. Christ is proclaiming victory over evil. And that's encouraging. That when you and I face evil in our lives, when you and I leave this place and will be bombarded this week with evil, and suffering and difficulty. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ is victorious over all. This is what he says in verse 22. Who has gone into heaven, ascension, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Christ is victorious over sin and death through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We can face difficulty and trial because we know that Christ is on the throne. That Jesus is victorious. That we can have new life through Him. Christ has given us example to follow. We are to trust in Him and to His victorious work on the cross for our sin. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would pursue good in our lives. I pray that we would cultivate love for one another, sacrificial love, love that would be willing to set aside, even be vulnerable to be hurt by others. Let us show care and sympathy for others' needs. Let us pursue compassion for one another, genuinely care about those who are in need. Let us weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Let us pursue good even if we should suffer for it. Let the promise of deliverance be yours today to suffer well for the sake of Christ, to know that you've been called for God's glory to do this. You are most found with Christ when you suffer for His glory. So be found with Christ today. Give Him honor as you suffer well, and heed the advice of our brother Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who himself endured much vile 
and wickedness. At the hands of Nazi Germany, Bonhoeffer sought to follow Christ. To endure the cross is not a tragedy, Bonhoeffer wrote. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. When it comes, it is not an accident, but a necessity. It is not the sort of suffering which is inseparable from this mortal life, but the suffering which is an essential part of the specifically, excuse me, of the specifically called Christian life. It is not suffering per se, but suffering and rejection. And not rejection for any cause or conviction of our own, but rejection for the sake of Christ. Or may we be rejected for God's glory and for our good. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we know much more could be said about these words. And so our prayer is a better sermon is heard than preached. We pray that we would pursue Christ in our lives, that we would give ourselves to you, to your glory. Father, we recognize that we are in need of you, that we are in need of your grace and power, and so we humbly ask that you would supply us with this difficult task of suffering. May we follow those saints before us who have suffered well and have brought you much glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Our final